And there I was, moved on my own to deeply hear what was going on inside me. And in that moment, I said, I would love to sing in the West End to perhaps explore my own personal creativity in a different way as an actor, unpeel the layers and try and find the truth in other characters and then hopefully make people happy. Hi there, and thank you for being again on this podcast episode in which I talk with Grant Elward, a British national who lives in France. He's the CEO of a great leadership development consultancy called High Impact. In our conversation, we talk a lot about leadership, about the importance of your emotional state as a leader and also as a communicator. In this conversation, he also explains how you can shift your emotional state for greater impact. And of course, we talk about his story from the corporate world to taking lead roles in the West End to ultimately giving up his dream to focus on the consultancy that he co-founded. What I appreciate maybe the most in Grant is his openness to learning, to being influenced by others. And uh, I was very touched by his story of his 10-year-old daughter advising him or allowing him to be himself with his new wife's children. So Grant, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast today. And to get us started, I'd like to just kick off with you explaining to our listeners what you do. It's a pleasure being here as well with you, Greg. So thank you for inviting me. I am the CEO of a very small company called High Impact. High Impact is a consultancy which has a vocation to explore the world of leadership and the world of impact through the qualities that belong to people. So the intrinsic qualities that make them capable of being leaders and capable of being impactful in their role as leaders. In 2005, when I began Quest to set up the brand High Impact, and then in 2007 with my co-founder, Steve Apps, we created a limited company and that was the start of the business as we know it today. What yeah. do I do? I do as a CEO, I manage the resources, the finances, I manage the vision of the company. I manage you know, making sure that hopefully that everybody that works and touches us understands why we're doing what we're doing. That's probably my biggest role as CEO. And then my job is to probably today what I do most, I try and manage the quality of what we do so that there's never any dilution that we are managing to the highest standards. That keeps us active, that keeps us solvent because clients come back because of the quality of what we do. Leaving legacies is our business and helping people develop the right qualities, not the wrong qualities, so that they can lead companies to greater futures and individuals to greater futures. Listening to you, you sound very humble. And at the same time, I look at the, just the name of the business, High Impact is quite ballsy, it's quite bold. And I wonder, where does the, where does the name come from? And maybe also, and I'm tagging two questions into one, how would you describe what High Impact does compared to other consultancies? I remember creating the very first seminar, which was called High Impact Presenting. So we were in the communication space and it was very much an interesting time where everything was spinning around me because I'd been in the world of acting for a number of years, having left the corporate world. I left the corporate world at the age of 33. So I worked for Mars 
I worked for Unilever, I worked for Kraft in a variety of roles and functions straight out of university in the UK. I went to, to Loughborough University and did a degree in business administration with French. I did a one-year placement in France working for Mars because I really wanted to, in some way, become a little bit more French. There were many things that I aspired to in France. But the reason I talk about France being an important part of this answer is because my very first seminar was under the banner or the brand of High Impact was with Mars in France. It was the leadership team in France who were trying to work out how they could have more impact in a very Anglo-Saxon communication environment. And they had these big sort of brand strat plans coming up where they had to present the roadmaps to their European VPs. And I got involved in that because somebody, another consultant who was working with that, that group at the time said, they want to have more impact communicating in English in a more formal environment. And boy, do they need it. So I got involved and this was the first time I'd really tucked into a design of what is the way I would do this. Now coming from drama school and I was still an actor and I'd had a 13 year career. So I had this hybrid of experiences that were spinning around in, inside me and I needed to lay them down in a way that made sense for the business world. So the first thing I did, and I remember this is really, I think probably important to answer the question high impact. First thing I said was, how can I help these people if I don't know who they are individually? That was the very first thing I said. So in the design, I put down, I need to speak to every one of these people individually before they come and join me in a session or in a training program. And that was very interesting because that has become a fundamental keystone of everything that high impact has done ever since. I thought the most important thing is to find out what what is emerging from them in the same way an actor peels off the layers of themselves in their own training? How can I peel off the layers to get some in, in, into some truth, which is about emotional connections? Because the one thing that I believed in at the time, having been through drama school and as an actor was, and this was the parallel between acting and the business world, was the only thing that really remains after any communication, after any interaction is the emotional connection that has been driven through that interaction. In the same way that an, act, an actor goes on stage, people pay to come and see them because they want to have some sort of escape. They want to be, they want the actors to shift their emotional state, to take them on a journey of some description, to make them react differently. And the only way that can truly happen is if the actors themselves are unable to engage in an emotional capacity. So that everything that the actor feels on stage is then felt by the audience. And that was the premise upon which I started to interview these people. And I really got under their skin. And with that, then came the thought process, what am I going to call this seminar? And I said, I think it's about taking people from where they are to a higher place. And we're in the world of impact. So let's call it high impact. This is, I guess, the genesis of high impact. You talked about you know, how the actor peels off layers in their training. Can you talk to this a little more? Yeah. So I talked about one of the founding principles, which was focus on the individual. So you can't broad brushstroke everybody. The recipe for your impact, Greg, as a podcast uh, facilitator and owner of a business and coach, the recipe for your impact is not the same for somebody else. So what we do is dig deep to find the truth about who you are 
know, has come to be labeled the metaphor of the actor's journey. And it is inspired indeed by the world of theater where a, a, an actor's mission is to engage with the script or to improvise a script, to engage with the thought processes that have given birth to a beautiful set of words on the page where they create interactions that reveals emotional states. And then they have to bring that to life through physical embodiment with the voice and with their body. So it all needs to have a certain congruence, a coherence for them and for the audience. And if the actor is not coherent or congruent in terms of connecting intellectual, physical and emotional dimensions, then there will be no truth. And the audience will sit there thinking, well, I don't believe him or her, and that's not a particularly good actor. And so the job is to get as close to the truth in a script as you can by looking at it through those lenses of intellect. So really scrutinizing every word and all the meaning that's underpinning it, and then bringing it to life through body and voice, and then also connecting it with emotions, because that's the only thing that will remain. The how do we do what we do, build exploration journeys, which at the heart rely on us, putting people into their bodies, putting people into their emotional states, and then revealing those. So that we explore the facets of their authenticity and the facets of their impact through those lenses. There's one other lens or one other dimension, which is the spiritual dimension, which is really, I guess, key when we're looking at leadership, because the leaders of today and tomorrow need to know why they're doing what they're doing. They need to know whether it makes sense to them. They need to find their own truth in what they're doing. And before, before you clicked record on this podcast, you talked about a mission led company that was the previous person on your podcast. And I asked you the question, what is a mission-led company for you? And your response was fabulous because you were talking about somebody who's doing something which has some positive impact somewhere. And I think that's at the heart of what a payback has always been about. And that's what we strive to achieve. We want to enable leaders who can then, they themselves, they can shine much further than any of us in our small company can do. So if we can help them become all that they can be in a positive way, all that they are, all that they have been and all that they can be more open to the world, more open to others, then perhaps we can reduce the conflict that exists in the world today. It's a huge pretension. It's a huge claim. And I'm not suggesting that we can get anywhere near it, but by perhaps affecting leaders to become more connected with themselves and to facilitate good contributions in others good emotional states in others, we can make a difference. That all comes from working people differently, getting them out of their intellectual space, getting them out of thinking that being a leader in a business is all about delivering a bit or, or above the line results. And it's about saying, no, actually your job is to facilitate the well-being of the people in the organization. I'd love to dig a little deeper before we shift to telling a bit more about your story, you mentioned what well, you need to shift your emotional state or you can shift your emotional state because the emotional state you're in will be something that will be the legacy that you'll leave after the interaction with the people in front of you. So how can we as leaders and as just human beings shift our emotional state? First of all, I think you've probably got to recognize what emotional state you're in before you can even begin to imagine shifting it. And that requires a level of sensitivity, sensitivity in the right way. So being sensitive to what's going on inside you, what's going on in the people around you that are interacting with you at that moment, 
what's perhaps caused your emotional state as it is and, and allowing that emotional state to be without judgment of your own emotional state, allowing that state to be. So it's about accepting it for oneself first. And that acceptance comes from a state of openness. How do you shift it? Accepting in one's own emotional state or accepting other emotional states of others is not easy. It's really not easy. And most people in the business world, or many people in the business world, not most, but many will run away from emotional states. Many people still have today the view that I'm not here. I'm not paid to deal with the emotional states of those around me. As a leader, it is your job to accept and deal with the emotional states of others. And indeed to help them shift their emotional states. That comes with the job. It comes with the world of creating connections. That's really difficult for people who maybe have grown up in a technical industry with production lines, or maybe you've grown up with the finance world where it's very binary, it's very sort of a logical world. And yet, and then they get thrust into these worlds where they're told, yeah, you've done a great job. Now we're going to give you more responsibility. And they find themselves in the shoes of what can be called leadership responsibilities. And so their job is not to make sense of things anymore. Their job is to help others make sense of things, leading through others' leadership or delivering through others' endeavors. And that's where it becomes really complex. And they have to learn to shift their own emotional state so that they're able to take on the emotional states of others without judgment, without failing in their role as a leader to make sense of what's going on for other people. How do you actually shift your emotional state? And that comes down to self-knowledge, understanding yourself, what's going on inside you. And if I bring that back to my own journey, the transition from the business world to, to the world of acting is an interesting case study. I remember my emotional state in the last job I had in the corporate world was working for Kraft Foods and I was a senior national account director. And I had a team of account managers working for me on those. And I think to illustrate this point about shifting emotional states, I'm going to mention a couple of people who were dear colleagues and friends. We were quite close as people. One of them was a guy called John Schooler, who you can look it up. He's done a great job as a career man, as a leader, working for a number of different companies, including Tesco is the last one he did. So John was an amazing guy, big Scottish guy. I remember him for his. He was a scratch golfer, so he was six foot five. And when he hit the ball on the golf course, it was enormous. And John had come through an education system through Scotland. He'd done the hires and very quickly, he had his sights set on retirement as a young professional, very quickly. So at 23 years old, he was already, I probably got the figures wrong, but he was already paying into his pension fund, something like 15% of his salary at 23, 24, 25, 26 years old which is quite visionary. It was quite a cold thing for him to do. And he had, I'll never forget this. He had his sights set on retiring at 55. And that's what he wanted to do. At the same time, there was another guy called Tony. I'll just call it Tony. And Tony was 56. So the age that I nearly am now. And Tony in craft was an account manager and he wasn't on the ascendancy. Indeed, he was actually hanging on, as can be the case. He was hanging on. He just got remarried a few years prior to that. His first wife died. And so Tony was in a situation where he had 
older kids. I think he had about six kids and he had a couple of new kids with his much younger wife. And his job was to hang on as long as he could before perhaps being ejected because he wasn't quite keeping up with the trends of the time and the evolution of the company. And he was a good guy and perhaps had built his career on relationships. So here we have two people at opposite ends of the spectrum. And I looked at these two people who I really admired for many different reasons. And I couldn't see myself in that. I couldn't see myself in the first one and I couldn't see myself in Tony's situation. And this got me thinking, and I remember being in a training room at Craft, and we'd, they'd recently done some work on visions and values and on the wall in this training room where we were learning about how to appraise our people and put the, their evaluations into a formal appraisal system. And it was so boxed up uh, that I was feeling this training was inappropriate for the way I was looking at the people that, that I was managing. I didn't feel that we could give them a score on every single criteria that we were supposed to. I felt it was more complex than that. And so my focus during that training drifted and I was looking at this poster on the wall, which was about being innovative. It was one of the values of craft at the time. And there was a picture of a sailing boat going off into the distance on the ocean. And the caption underneath it read, in order to go on a journey of an adventure, you first have to lose sight of the shore. And as I sat there, I looked at this training program that we were supposed to, as managers, learn to box people in. And then I looked at this, and then I looked at this, and really, I was in a place where I realized there and there I needed to shift something in me because I was getting grumpy. I was getting really grumpy with what the business was asking us to do. So I ran out of that training room, and I ran off to my car, I drove off to Wales. I lived in the, in Chelten at the time. I drove off to Wales and it was just before the end of the year. And I oh know it was between Christmas and New Year. That's right. And I got to Dolgetli, which is a beautiful village or a little town in the Welsh Valleys in Snowdonia. And I jumped out of the car, got there at two o'clock in the afternoon. There was a park wall. And I said, I'm going up Kandaridris. And he said, no, you're not. It's, uh, it's two o'clock in the afternoon. It's dark in less than two hours. It's really bad weather and it's a six hour walk. I said, I'm going. And I literally got out of the car, put on my rucksack, put on some waterproofs and I started to run. And I ran up Cadaridris, which is a kind of a decent enough mountain. I got to the top. I couldn't see a thing. I touched the stone at the top point of view stone. I couldn't see anything. We were completely in cloud. I got rained on hailed on, snowed on, and then I said, all right, which way is down? And I managed to find myself on a scree run, they call it. And that scree run is where you just jump and you land on these stones and they give way, jump again. And I ran down the scree run all the way down the mountain. And eventually I got back down to the car safe and sound. And in two hours, I went up and down in two hours and I was exhausted. And I booked into a pub in the middle of Dolgetti that evening and met some guys I'd never met before. We had a lot of beer. I have, I remember having six or seven pints. So I got quite drunk and I told them about what I was doing there. And one of them said, why are you doing this? And he said, it looks like you needed to get something out of your system. And clearly I did. And I said, I just don't know whether what I'm doing at the moment is where I want to be. And I need to shift my emotional state. So we had a great evening and I went to bed. And I woke up in the morning, and this is a really important contrast, I think. 
when I woke up, I pulled the curtains back and all of that rain and snow and hail and sleet, everything that had fallen down during the night, the temperatures had plummeted and the clouds had gone and there was blue skies and during the night, starry night. And so the temperatures plummeted and it was very wet in the atmosphere. So when I pulled back the curtains in the morning, a little bit bleary eyed, the most gorgeous view awaited me. Every single tree had probably an inch of hoarfrost on it. The whole world had turned white outside. Everything was white. And it was just the most inspirational sight I think I've ever seen. So I had breakfast and the guys the evening before had said, go and look up a mountain called Knicht. And they said, it's a good fun journey to get there. And it's a bit of a fairy tale mountain. It's, it's like the Disney mountain. It goes up and down. So I got in the car after breakfast and I started to drive off to this mountain. And effectively I had to leave the main road at one point and go down a narrow single track lane. And I quickly came across a cattle grid with a gate. So I had to stop, get out the car, open the gate, get back in the car, drive over the cattle grid through the gate, stop the car, get out again, close the gate and drive off. And I say that because this detail was quite important. There were seven cattle grids on this little road. So as I was driving along, I was, I was happy because the weather was beautiful. It was so inspirational. And there was this kind of, oh, there's another gate. I'll just get out and open that one. And then there was another one. And then there was another one. And I was thinking, I wonder when these gates are going to end. But all the time I was humming songs or even singing songs. And the songs were mostly from the world of the mu of musical theater, which was something that I'd been involved with as an amateur for the previous two years, just as something to, as a gap, a stop gap from having left the world of rugby, which was my life before that I had time. So I started to sing on the stage in, in amateur shows in Cheltenham and I found myself singing show tunes and I found myself thinking back to the power of music and storytelling and the buzz and the adrenaline of being on stage. And I started to think back to when I'm 16 years old and well, 14 years old, I saw Les Miserables in London and I was moved as a teenager to tears by that musical, which again was this combination of amazing performances with great singing voices and storytelling to die for, of course, Victor Hugo, who wrote it originally. So the story is very powerful. And all of this came flooding back. And then suddenly I came across the king and it was there. It was this fairy tale mountain. And there were two houses just at the foot of it. And that's it. There's nothing else. And I've driven for ages in these Welsh countryside to find it. And I stopped the car and I kept on singing and I started climbing Knecht and I was the only person on the mountain. And I got to the top and I was very happy. I was so happy. And I got there and I sat down and I got my packed lunch out and I could literally see for miles. I could see the whole of the Isle of Anglesey. I could see Snowdonia and all its beauty. I started to dream. I started to drift. I started to look at myself and think, what is it that's important to me? What do I want to do with my life? Where do I want to go? And I realized that in the last few weeks and months, and particularly these last two days had been a personal quest. And that contrast of the, the intemporaries of the day before that frenetic run up Cadaridges, and then this peaceful, joyous walk up commit. And there I was moved on my own to deeply hear what was going on inside me. And in that moment. I said, I would love to 
seeing in the West End to perhaps explore my own personal creativity in a different way as an actor, unpeel the layers and try and find the truth in other characters and then hopefully make people happy from an acting perspective for those that are in the audience. Now, it's not about did Grant make it to the West End, that's another story, but it is about that moment where had all of the things that I've just described not been in place, I would not have been able to hear what was truly moving me inside. And that little dream of an idea, wouldn't it be lovely to sing in the West End, would have stayed just a dream. But in that moment, I was moved to action. So the journey down, as I left the views and the vistas behind me, the journey down the mountain was one of formulating a plan. And that was the difference. That was the real difference. I was moved to determination to do something about it. So by the time I got down, I thought, well, I'm 31 years old. How'd you get into the West End? God knows, but I don't have any qualifications. I'm not a good dancer. I maybe have a little bit of a voice. I'm not too bad looking. That might help me, but I don't know. Am I a character? What am I? I don't know. But I know one thing. If I'm going to get into the West End, I need to go through the best drama school, the equivalent of Harvard for the MBA, I need to find that. So that's what I did. As soon as I got home, I started to research it, found out which were the two best drama schools, what was the process for getting into them, and the journey began. And I spent a year having jazz lessons and tap lessons and acting lessons and singing lessons. Every day after work, I started saving like mad. I went to see my wife very quickly because she was my wife, and I said, what would you do if I'm going to leave the corporate world, gave back the BMW, and then went to become an actor? And she said, hmm, let me think about this, Grant. And as I saw her do that, I thought, I wonder what's important to her. And, and over that two-week period before she came back and said, I will support you, I was realizing that I hadn't actually been listening to what was important to her as much as I needed to. And she said, I'll support you. Please don't put the family on hold anymore. And it was, I just realized that every time she said, I'd love to have some children. And I'd been saying, later, we'll do it later. We'll do it later. So that was a big moment for me where it was, I was hit straight between the eyes, between the selfishness that I'd been demonstrating previously. And there was, there was I asking for support on something and, and I hadn't seen what her needs were. So that's the kind of the deeply. I guess the deeply difficult bit for me at the time. And Very then nice. the beauty of the story is perhaps that we did start trying to have a baby. It took a long time to conceive. I spent a year training up to, to get into Guildford School of Acting, the conservatory, the conservatoire. My wife and I were trying for a baby. We had difficulty conceiving and it took 18 months to conceive. And all that time, I had gone through the audition process, got a place at Guildford, and then I eventually started at Guildford, and we still had no sign of a baby arriving. And then after three months at Guildford, my wife came to see me, and she said, guess what? I'm pregnant. And my son, Keelan, was born on the very same day that I graduated, which for me was a bit of, I don't know how you call that. Is that serendipity? Is that coincidence? Or is that divine intervention. I don't know, but I still believe to this day that there was something very powerful at work for that to happen. Now you did ask the question, what did Grant made it, make it to, uh, to the waste end? I was very lucky to go to Guildford School of Acting 
learn. The journey of the mountain was just the start of something much bigger. And, and I was very lucky to get into London's top drama school for musical theatre. And the result of that is that you come out with, uh, with at least a possibility of getting an agent. And I was lucky because we did a showcase in the West End and I got an agent and then I started to audition for private auditions and uh, it was just a matter of time. It's a bit of a numbers game. And then I was lucky enough to get into some shows. My first show was not the West End, but it was a regional show in provincial theatre in Perth in Scotland. And I did that. And then before too long, I got an international gig in Sweden and then before I knew it, I got a role of fame in, in Scotland's West End in Edinburgh and then into Footloose for the UK tour. And then I got into Blood Brothers in the West End and I did lots more shows as well. And ironically, or no, beautifully, the last song in the show, Blood Brothers, bears the title, Tell Me It's Not True. And there I was on my first evening of the show on the front line of the cast in Blood Brothers, belting out this number called Tell Me It's Not True. And I was blabbing like a baby inside with joy. So mm. yes, I did. I was very lucky. Yeah, lucky you said it as well, determined, right? And there is always an element of luck for sure, but there is this vision that you had at the top of the Knish mountain. And then as you came down, just this sense of, okay, that's what I've got to do. And I'm going to go for it. I would like to just point out that you're being determined to achieve something doesn't mean that you're going to achieve it. It is the start point. And, and I think the achievement comes from accepting help along the way. And there were many people who I'm greatly indebted to along the way. You know, Natalie, my, my first wife, she was very supportive. I think uh, I met beautiful people along the way. One guy called Ian Ricketts at Guildford School of Acting. He was definitely the person who has singularly had the most impact on me in my whole life. He was, he is an amazing man who had this gift of being extraordinarily present and making you feel that you were the most important thing in the world at that particular point in time. He was full of wisdoms, sometimes so eloquent in his wisdoms. I didn't really understand everything he said, and it took a long time sometimes for his words of wisdom to spill over into some meaningful, resonating comprehension afterwards. He would say things like, you'll like this one. He would say, you're so consumed by the stars in your eyes and you must learn to understand that luck has a funny way of favoring the persistent and the prepared <laughs> well that was his kind of way of challenging my motivation for being on that journey to get into the west end and to be honest he was right i was probably initially at least looking for stardom trying to be the star i think that was probably true and it was only when I started to let go of that, that the real possibility of getting there started to emerge. And so how do you know that you're going, you want to be an actor? Well, I didn't, I didn't have, I wasn't a child protege at four years old, being singing at school. And I didn't have parents that were pushing me into that world. In fact, anything but pushing me into the arts. I had a father who told me I was not creative. Maybe that was something quite deep inside me, pushing me to be. Creative. When I finally gave up rugby, which was a big part of my life at 31, it was only there that I thought, what do I do now? And suddenly what emerged was, I think I'd like to do something creative. Going through the acting journey of seven years was definitely the biggest learning journey because it, it, it destroyed so many beliefs that I had about what was right, what was wrong. If you were to choose a few key ones, which one would they be? 
I think the biggest one is what the sense of one's own importance. And when you're an actor, you are not serving your own goals on stage. And if you are, you will not succeed. So if you're determined to be the star in the show, then you, you're just heading for one big thumping failure. So that was the first thing. And I think the world of acting is an interesting case study for the world of psychology because actors deal with rejection on a more regular basis than anybody else in the world. You, you show up for an audition and you don't get feedback, you don't hear back. You just don't get it or you do get it, or you get invited to a second or a third or a fourth, fifth, sixth audition for the big roles in the West End. And learning to deal with rejection, I think, is learning to say, actually, the decision that they've made is not personal. And yet it, it can feel very personal at times. And if you know that you screwed up on the song that you auditioned with, or you screwed up on the lines, it's easier to accept rejection because you didn't warrant it. You didn't merit it. And then there, there are many times where you go in and you do what you consider to be the best you can do. And it's a perfect audition. And you walk out, you think, man, I think I nailed that audition. And you still don't get it. And it, it's personal and it isn't personal. They're making decisions based on very subjective criteria. It might be, it might be you did a lovely audition, but we feel that the sound of your voice will not compliment the leading lady who you're supposed to be playing next to, or we're on a budget for this show at the moment. And the previous incumbent who was doing your role was smaller than you. We can't afford to buy a new costume. So learning to deal with rejection, I think was the big milestone or set of milestones to take yourself out of the equation. Make sure that you know why you're doing this. And it is for a more noble cause, which is to help other people feel something different in moments of theater. It is a fantastic world. All right. So I love everything you've said so far, because you've touched on many points in your story and, and how you approached those critical moments in, in your life and career. I wonder if there are others that are worth touching on stopped acting at, uh, at 40 years old. And here I am, I'm now 55. So that was a long time ago. And I stopped acting. Perhaps that's another moment. It was an interesting one because I got, people do ask me, why are you not acting now? Or do you still act? And I came to, uh, I came to a crossroads. So what happened was I was, I was fortunate enough to be quite well known for in the West End. At least I was in the right circles to get good auditions for some big shows. And I was lucky enough to get to the final selection for the lead role of the world tour of Mamma Mia, which was the biggest show in the world at the time. So there's three fathers in Mamma Mia, uh -huh. and one of them is the father of the child. And that was the one that Piers Brosnan played in the film. That was the role that I was up for, and they offered it to me on the world tour. So I had a choice to make. We had the two young children. I said to my wife, I think we should, we can do this. We can go have some fun. And then within two days, I phoned my agent and said, I'm not going to do it. And it was nothing to do with the logistics of taking two kids around the world in a rather, on a rather shoestring budget. It was nothing to do with that. It was to do with me not wanting to sing ABBA, who I love dearly but not wanting to sing ABBA songs for a year, eight, eight shows a week. And I'm not sure that was the right decision now, looking back. I'm not sure that was the, I think I still, I regret not doing it now. 
A little bit. But what happened was my agent said, I've had enough of you. Yeah. You make your own decisions. You're not thinking about your career. I can't work with that. And my 15% commission. What about that? So you're fired. So I dropped fired by my agent, found myself a potential lead role in, in big musicals with no agent. And I was also doing a lot of work in the business world. So I'd already created high impact brand. And so we were doing some wonderful things. And, and there was this kind of, there was this recognition from other people, mostly that I had something to offer the business world through my hybrid of experiences. So that moment when I got fired by my agent was a critical moment. I then had a decision to make and I chose to pursue the world of apps building a brand of a company called My Impact, which, which I definitely don't regret. And how did you make that choice? That's such a difficult choice. You've given up a corporate career seven years ago. You went through the best London acting school. You are chosen for the lead role of Mamma Mia, the biggest musical on the planet. It felt easy. It felt really easy. The work that we were doing in High Impact, to say it was fulfilling is an understatement. It was incredibly stimulating, made me and those working with me feel absolutely unbelievable. So that feeling that I was probably seeking in stage work and film work and as an actor, I was finding parallels within the, the seminar work that we did. I was able to give of myself freely without any artificial aspect. So I could be me. That was the first thing. So for everything that I was, no holes barred. I didn't put, I didn't have to pretend that I was anything but who I was and everything that I had done. That was a real relief for me. And in doing that, what I noticed, and I know Steve and the other people who worked on High Impact at that time, we, we were all feeling that we had stumbled across some way of doing something which had a dramatic effect on people. And that started to really replace quite comfortably the thrill of being an actor, but in a different way. And something else was driving me, which was no doubt to perhaps earn some money. I think that was driving me, not a massive driver, but it was certainly substituting poor pay from the acting industry. And we were on an exploration. We started a re couple of research projects, which was really interesting. So the first research project I called stirring the leader within, and I gathered together a dozen I guess you could call them experts in their field. So they were from academia, they were from leadership, they were from the world of acting, they were from the world of movement, from the world of education, and some practitioners as well of leadership seminars. And together we spent a year trying to understand what physically we could do to develop leadership qualities. The second exploration that we were doing with Steve was to really understand how we could improve anybody's personal impact. And one of the words that always came up in our seminars from the participants, when we asked them what characterizes impactful people in communication, they would say, oh, they're charismatic. So we started to deep dive into the word charisma and that became a two year project to explore what the ingredients of charisma are. In other words, what makes somebody charismatic? And on a hypothesis at the time was if we can identify the ingredients, then maybe through uh, an aggregation of marginal gains and working independently on each of those ingredients, we can increase anybody's charisma. And that became what you know to be the high back compass with 12 qualities on it. 
Those qualities are intrinsic to most human beings. And when we focus on one of those qualities, we can develop it. Can we develop leadership qualities through the bottle? And qualities like openness and qualities like magnetism, qualities like being composed of very physically engineered qualities. Well, leaders need those. And everything that happens in your body actually will affect the way that you're looking at the world and the way that others interact with you, the feelings that they get. So those two research programs, I think, cemented my commitment to not pursuing acting and pursuing her impact. I've got a set of rapid fire questions. What's the most important lesson you've learned from your journey so far? Oh my goodness. What a question. There have been so many. Let me pick one. Okay. Standing up for something that you believe in, you do become exposed. People won't always like you. And it's when they don't like you that you're standing up for something. And I think leadership is a lot about that. You can't please everybody. Make sure you know why you're doing what you're doing. And eventually, if there is an emotional connection, much will be forgiven, but not everything. What's been most rewarding? Oh, one, two, three, 10, 20, 200, 300, 500, 1,000. 2,000, 10,000 people that I may have crossed paths with and seeing them start a journey with high impact and finish the journey with high impact somewhere else in a different place. Is it, is it 10,000 or is it two? It doesn't matter. I can remember so many individuals who have graced me with permission to, to look into their eyes and ask them to shift something, seeing how people can become their powerful selves. That is the most rewarding thing. And uh, what experience has helped you grow the most? Funny, when you said that, there's so many things flashed before my eyes, but one of the things that came to me uh, was I was at a point in time where I was struggling to build the relationships with my new wife's children. And because it was a tough situation, it was a, a re a rebuilt family with children on both sides, a split, a divorce, and then getting together in a different way. And I was struggling to build the relationships with the children at a point where I was busy as well. And, and I found myself talking to my daughter who was 10 at the time or 11. She wasn't very old, no, no, her name is. And in that moment, I remember her looking at me and saying, I said, what would you do with the other children? And she looked at me and she very quietly said, daddy, you should perhaps just be yourself. That was a big lonely. So she was seeing me behave different with these other children that I was now partly father to, to the way I'd be behaving with her. And she gave me permission to do that. So that was a, a big learner. Wow. And a big gift giving you that permission. Mm. And you've alluded to a few people who've inspired you, um, already. I wonder 
who else? I don't want to name too many of them because there are so many. I could talk about Jean Dominique Sedar, who has always been somebody I was. I thought, well, that would, if I was to be a leader of a big industry, like he's the Caribbean chairman of Red Oak, and he was previously the CEO of uh, Michelin. And, and this guy had a, the most incredible capacity to wear the qualities that I consider important and that I impact considers important. There was never, and there is never any lack of depth to his conviction, his fervency, his sense of where he's going and the, the importance of making that meaningful for others. Mm. He's a very composed guy whilst being very communicative. He's very expressive, but he's always very composed when he's talking, yet he's animated when he's talking. So it's expressiveness with a sense of anchoring, a real sense of composure. He lacks nothing when it comes to sensitivity and humility, a real sense of when he's being interviewed by the press or when he's talking with his board or when he's talking with me, because I've met him on several occasions, he, there's a real sense he gives time and space for you without judging what you're bringing. And that I think is the, you know, what he conveys time and time again. He never avoids the difficult subjects. He does give his point of view, holding it lightly enough so that it can evolve if it needs to. And there are difficult things that he has to say at times, which he does with great eloquence and great empathy for those who must receive mes messages in a slightly negative way. He does things in a slightly different way. He's, I think he's braver than most leaders I've ever met, whilst having to be conformist because he's in a partly a government owned state enterprise. And uh, he has huge responsibility to stakeholders and shareholders. So there was a certain amount of straitjacketing that has to be there. But within that, he's incredibly brave about the choices he makes that others wouldn't do. So he will say things the way they perhaps others would say, you can't say that, but he can. He's a very brave man in that sense. Before we close, I'd love to have a follow-up on how do you shift emotions? That's a topic that to me is important and I think can help others. And you've told the story of how dramatically you can shift emotions. I wonder, do you have any cues on how can you shift emotions in the moment? without having to leave the, the training room and climb a six hour summits in two hours. Yeah, I think you can shift emotions by allowing yourself to connect. I think that's the key. So if you're telling the story of a very emotional moment with your son, then telling the story to others in a way that is, this is what happened and this is what then this is what we did afterwards, can be quite septic, can give me, it can be quite boring. Allowing yourself to go back to that moment, to be with your son in that moment where something shifted, to remember it, to remember that moment, to see it and to be in the moment, but not with the audience at that point in time is a way of shifting your emotional state. And that takes great openness to, in order to connect with it. Most people will filter out the emotional connections in, a, in an important moment. Those who don't allow, those who allow themselves to go back to that moment will be able to shift their emotional state in the same way that if you connect with somebody in the moment, when you're connect, when you're talking with them, we're interacting with them and allow yourself to be affected by their emotional state and by your own with no filters, no censorship of what's going on. That is a route to shifting your emotional state. It makes you vulnerable. That's the difficulty. And others are not necessarily comfortable with you being emotional. 
in which case you have to take that into account so that, that, so that they give you permission to be relational. And that's about connections. Mm. Mm. Is there anything else you would have liked to share? It's interesting as I observed myself giving answers to your question, it was interesting to me to note that I was talking about things which might sound like, oh, that's high impact and he's plugging it. And of course it is that. And at the same time, I was thinking, actually, that's me. You asked me to talk about me. Everything that we do today, I think is that we've talked about today is a true reflection of everything that, that I am. So thank you for giving me this opportunity. I'm very grateful for this gift of you opening up to your stories, to going back to the important moments and responding to the difficult questions at times. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of the Derby podcast. I hope you got inspired to follow your mission with passion. If you liked this episode, please subscribe. I would also really appreciate it if you can leave a review on your podcast platform. It makes a huge difference and it will help others get inspired by these stories too. Till next time, derby yourself. <laughs>